0: So as we continue in worship this morning, I will read our scripture passage. It comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter,
1: Let's pray together. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls to listen for your voice this morning. We thank you that you are infinitely patient with us, but in your patience, you continue to desire to shape us so that we are people profoundly in love with our Creator, filled with the Holy Spirit, and equipped by you to impart hope in a world desperately needing hope. So would you speak to us even now in these few minutes that we have together in the text this morning And may the text come alive by the ministry of your Holy Spirit and speak to each of us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We're beginning a new series this morning. The series is about Moses. And in particular, it's about Moses and the notion of calling. A little bit about leadership as well, how we live into our calling as leaders. All these things are in the text. God desires to use every one of us In the same manner in which God used Moses, God used Moses as an instrument of deliverance in the lives of other people. In other words, delivering the nation of Israel, the nascent nation of Israel, from slavery into freedom, right? And from uh, Egypt, ultimately, God's desire into a promised land, God desires to use you, every one of you, as an instrument of deliverance because Christ is in you and Christ says, right, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if I, Christ, am the truth, it's the truth, ultimately, that will Set you free, and so if Christ lives in you, God's desire is to use you to help other people move into freedom. It could be freedom from addiction, it could be freedom uh, to make the right decisions in a, in a relationship that needs healing, it could be freedom as we participate in addressing systemic problems in our, in our culture, problems as we were talking at the beginning of the service with a friend of mine, clean water, literacy, uh, violence in the world, racism. But God wants all of us to be in God's story, and some of us fail at times to connect the dots between the events of our lives and the unique context and giftedness that God has for us in our particular calling. In other words, every one of you is shaped by your story, if I can say it that way, every one of us. We're shaped by our upbringing, by our family, those kind of things, but we don't all see it. If, if, now, how many know what I mean when I say the Myers-Briggs test in here, anybody? Most of you probably do because that's a Western, it's our culture, this is what we do. You go to a job, you take the Myers-Briggs and you, then you get four letters that define you. Uh, my four letters are E-N-F-P, you don't have to know anything other than this. ENFPs, I'm told, we, we see meaning in everything. Right? Every single event is ripe with profound, at the least, symbolic significance, if not actual significance. And I'm definitely an ENFP because I see meaning where there is no meaning. (laughs) I will still find meaning. And so today, what I want you to see as we look at this beginning of Moses' life is this. I want you to see that there are three experiences in Moses' life that shaped his calling. Significant experiences. We're born into a context... Just like Moses, Uh, we are served by courage and compassion. Other people have fed us, just like Moses was served by courage and compassion. And by virtue of those things, all of us in the room are prepared for a calling. And so Moses' story is uh, prototypical. In other words, there are things in Moses' story that are in your story and mine. And I want to help you see this morning, and in particular on Father's Day. I, my suspicion is that some of you will be getting together with uh, either friends or family after the service sometime today. And my encouragement today would be for you to share some of your family story today at some point when you gather with your family so that you can help each other see this is the context in which God has prepared me for my life. So, these three things we're going to begin here by looking at the reality that Moses is born into a context. He's born into a context. So you have a text, uh, Exodus chapter one, verse eight. A king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Joseph this is a continuation really, of Genesis where Joseph brought the, 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 like, his brothers and his dad down to Egypt and then in Egypt uh, they took root and multiplied And so he said, look, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let's deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And they'll join themselves to those who hate us. And so Israel is enslaved. The Jews are enslaved in Egypt. That's the context into which Moses is born. Moses, in other words, if I can say this way, is born into a context of oppression. And that context of oppression becomes for Moses the basis of his calling. It's a simple observation here, but it applies to all of us in the room. Understand this, our time and place matter. Where, you, where and when you are born matter a great deal. Gandhi in India, Mandela, South Africa, MLK, Deep South, Charleston, Orlando, your street, your home, Seattle, proximity to Bagley, proximity to aurora, (laughs) nothing's accidental. It matters where you are, and it matters the time in which you are where you are. It's important to see that everyone is born into this time and place that God has given them, and whatever is your time and place, there's something about that time and place that's glorious, yes, but there are things in that time and place which are broken because our world is broken, And our particular context in which we find ourselves, the convergence of time and place, will shape our calling, everybody in the room. But here's the thing, only if I pay attention to my time and place will my time and place shape my calling. And so each person's time and place will include certain elements that are significant. And the two that we're going to look at in this particular story this morning Or this, we all have a family history that shapes us. That's part of our time and place. And we all have a social setting that shapes us. That's part of our time and place. So let's let's just take a look at this. For Moses, when we talk about family history, Moses has a crazy family history. Uh, If we go back and again look at the text, uh, in chapter 2, a man from the house of Levi went and married the daughter of Levi. And then uh, there was conception and there was birth. And then, when mom saw that the child was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, why? Well, here's the thing. She ends up actually hiding him until she could hide him no longer, and then she puts him in the river, as we'll see in a moment. And then he ends up in the river, being seen by a member of Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh being the king, if we'd call it that, of Egypt, And so he's brought into Pharaoh's household, raised in the household of royalty in Egypt. And all of this, according to Acts 7, ends up preparing him for his ultimate calling as the deliverer out from Egypt for the Jews into freedom. So I was just going to say here, uh, Moses is prepared by his adoption, by by, uh, his parents forcefully needing, in a sense, to send him away, by the family of origin and by the family of adoption, all of that, he's shaped by his personal family history. It shapes him profoundly. And I will just say to you, that matters for everybody in the room. Both the pluses and minuses of our family history matter a great deal. Phil Yancey, how many have read books by Phil Yancey in here? Anybody in the room? He's one of my favorite authors, and he focuses on grace in a huge, large way. And he was shaped by by growing up in a hyper-fundamentalist church where racism was rampant and fear was rampant in the deep south. And he, as a result of it, he really wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And then uh, his mother made him go to a Bible college, hyper-fundamentalist as well. Classes were, so, were easy for him. He went to college. He left. He married and then eventually, he went to work in the housing projects of Chicago because he'd become a Christian, but he became a Christian in reaction to hyperfundamentalism. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he found the true Christ in reaction to this kind of false Christ that was erected. It's actually a very powerful story. And the false Christ led him to the true Christ, if I can say it that way. The legalism led him to an emphasis on grace. The racism led him to a commitment to help the, uh, the, the, the least and the most vulnerable among us. Uh, the, the, the oppression in which he found himself led him to a lust for leading people to freedom. He was shaped by his story. And he would go on to become a great writer. And he has a story, and Moses has a story, and I... I Uh, You need to know, as we get into this series here with Moses, he's my favorite character in the Old Testament. There's two reasons in particular he's my favorite character. Well, there are more than two, but I'll share with two for now, right? First, I love Moses because he's adopted and I'm adopted. Second, I love Moses because he is a reluctant leader. He didn't want the job. I didn't want the job either. (laughs) There are days when I still don't want the job. And there are days when Moses didn't want the job. And so I, like, he's... I identify with Moses. I've read these stories dozens of times because I love these stories, right? And so let's talk about Moses and adoption because people who are adopted are shaped both by their family of origin, biologically at the least, and by their adoptive family. And in Moses' case, his family of origin being Jewish created in him a sense of solidarity with the Jewish people which would ultimately lead him to respond to an injustice, as we'll see next week, uh, perpetrated against the Jews. And his adopted family gave him an understanding of Egyptian culture and inroads into place of power. He knew the land, he knew the language, he knew the customs, he knew the leaders. firsthand. he knew the leaders. So, shaped by his family of origin, shaped by uh, his adopted family. Uh, who in the room... You don't have to raise your hands, but some of you are adopted, perhaps. Or some of you have, perhaps, adopted others. And it's a powerful intersection, the family of origin and the adopted family. My family of origin, and I know this, because I I don't know my adoptive parents, but I know a little bit about them. My family of origin gave me gifts in music and in teaching. They did. Uh, my natural father was a, was a teacher, a music teacher. <laughs> and uh, so I grew up in a family that could care less about music. And it drove me nuts, actually. I would, literally, I would, I would be listening to symphonies. It sounds like something from Frasier, but it's true. It's true in my life. I would, I would put symphony little albums on, and I'd go to the library and I'd rent the score, I'd check out the score, and I'd conduct symphonies when I was 11 years old. And so I'm in the living room with a baton, conducting Tchaikovsky, uh, Sixth Symphony, Pathetique, or Beethoven's Fifth, or whatever, the classics. And you know, I played timpani, I played piano, I was, I was, a, I was a musician. I, ended, I was a composition major, ultimately. And my parents would come in, adoptive parents, and they, they would say, what are you doing? i would say, I'm playing. They, and they'd, they'd be like this, This isn't how children play. (laughs) Children don't play this way. Children go outside and, you know, Little League. And I played Little League. I love sports, but I was shaped profoundly by that, right? And then my adopted family, uh, in which I ended up, because my adoptive father was doing this and I grabbed his thumb, that's how I ended up in the family. Uh, that family gave me a deep love of Christ, profound faith, and faith shaped significantly by a guy named John Hunter, who was part of a torchbearer community, which I ultimately became a part of. I just returned from Germany, a week of meetings with torchbearers. Uh, so, this faith was shaped in my life mostly in. Outdoor places, camp, the mountains, redwood trees. I think one of the reasons we have a wilderness ministry here and so many REI employees here and so many Young Life Malibu guides here is because I was shaped in this way. I was shaped by the death of my adoptive dad at an early age so that Jesus became my best friend when I was 19 years old. All of that stuff has shaped me. And here's the thing. You have a family of birth and an adopted family as well. Did you know that? Because whether or not you're adopted literally, all of you who are in the family of Christ have been adopted. Read it. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. You are adopted by God. In other words, you're chosen by God. Adoption is is not by birth. Adoption is by choice. And when my parents told me I was adopted, they said, Hey, you know, everybody else, the baby they... Gay is the baby they were stuck with. They tried to paint it in the best possible light. <laughs> and, and, and then they said to me, But you were chosen. And that felt good, right? And I was chosen. And you've been chosen. And here's the thing, all of you in the room have been, ch- and I have too, I've been chosen by God to be a person of hope in this world. <laughs> chosen to be light in darkness. Chosen to be joy in the midst of profound sorrow and brokenness. Chosen to be people with a lust for justice in a world of oppression. And all of us are given a unique capacity to express that hope by the gifts that God has given us. The story of my conception isn't pretty, but the glory of the gospel isn't that God protects us from the effects of the fall. In every story, every family story, there's brokenness. And God doesn't give us immunity from brokenness. But the wisdom of God is this. God uses even tragedy to shape us. Isn't that remarkable to you? God uses even tragedy in good ways. So that we can, in the end, better represent the hope and love and joy and freedom found in Christ. And I just think that's amazing. So that I say to students when I travel, look, as you look over your life, there may be sexual abuse in your life there may be alcoholic parents, there may be divorce, there may be, I mean, whatever it is, all, everybody has a story. And this is what I say to people. When you look back on your life, you needn't look back with regret, ever. (laughs) And this is how I say it, there are no if-onlys. And I encourage people, as I will encourage you to do today, to look at those elements of your story that have, have been marks of regret in your life. Oh, if only. If only I hadn't done that. If only my parents had been different. If only I had more money. If only I were better looking. If only I'd finished college. If only I hadn't slept with them. If only I hadn't failed. If only, if only, if only. There are no if-onlys. None. (laughs) Even the failures that you chose, God can use and redeem in a positive way. Uh, Read it. It's in the book of uh, Joel, among many other places in the Bible, where God says this, look, I will make up to you For all the years where the locusts ate all the grapes. And that's just God's way of saying, you may have had a season in your life where you didn't see any fruit at all because life was terribly dark in the midst of infidelity or divorce or failure or abuse. No if-onlys. God redeems everything so that we can look at all of our if-onlys and and then we can say this. God, I hold this if-only up and this is what I say. Thank you. Not thank you that it happened. Thank you that you could use it in a redemptive way and that you can, and even if I don't see it yet, by faith I say, thank you. Death of my dad, thank you for how you used that. Jesus my best friend. Adoption, thank you that I I was brought into a family where faith was real. Personal failures, thank you that I've learned grace. And that every time, Jesus, that I think you must be done with me now because I've gone too far, I, I wake up and you still love me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is huge, friends. All of us have a family history. And we'd actually do well to share our stories with spouse, friends. Or if you're single, with roommates. Great, share your stories. Because it's in the context of sharing our stories that we begin to even, like in a very real way, worship the character of God who's able to redeem every piece of our story. So... Moses is born into a a context which includes a personal family history, but also it includes a social setting. In other words, he's born in the midst of a time of oppression. Uh, The British occupation of India shaped Gandhi. Apartheid shaped Mandela. Racism shaped MLK. And it's not just that we're shaped by unjust causes that eventually become popular. We who are people of faith are also shaped by things that the larger culture views as normal, which shouldn't be viewed as normal at all. Hyper-individualism isn't normal. (laughs) It's destroying our culture. Being lonely and afraid of your neighbor isn't normal. Sexual intimacy, divorced from the covenant of marriage, actually isn't normal. It's normal in our culture. It's not normal in God's mind. Not because God is anti-sex, but because God is pro-life and pro-joy and and wants us to live lives of wholeness. Human trafficking isn't normal. Getting your sexual satisfaction through images on screens, not normal. Eating poison, not normal. Eating too much, not normal. Eating not enough, not normal. Hating your body, not normal. Going to sleep at night wanting to kill yourself, not normal. (laughs) And what happens... Is that people of faith rise up in the particular social setting in which they find themselves, and God speaks to each of our hearts differently, but we rise up and, regarding something, this is what we do. We say, Enough. I am going to address this, whatever it is. When I lived in Los Angeles, a man had a ministry in Venice Beach down there to drugged out teens, people living on the streets. And he was, he was a normal pastor and then something like caught on fire in his heart. And he quit his normal respect, uh, uh, respectable church ministry. And he began this street ministry to teens. And the denomination at the time, didn't, they just didn't know what to do with him. And they said, why are you doing this? He says, because I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I... I, I Lives are being destroyed, and we're not. Nobody's, nobody's doing anything. I'm going to do something. I have a friend who's involved in ministry presently in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. People whose lives have been emptied through drugs and sexual chaos and loneliness and addiction. And he quit a high-paying job, and that's what he's doing now, because he said enough. Amy Carmichael was a a missionary in India moving girls out of temple prostitution because she said, enough. (laughs) And in every case, what happens is there's a fire that begins to burn inside of us, and this becomes the basis for our calling. And all those in the room are shaped by the age and setting in which We live and there are times when we will join with the broader culture and say, this must end, racism must end, Islamophobia must end, homophobia must end, human trafficking is not okay, we'll stand with popular trends at times, or should, and there are times when we will stand against the culture, as we do when we say that sex belongs in marriage, as we do when we say a fetus is a baby, not a tissue, (laughs) We'll stand against the culture sometimes. We'll stand with the culture sometimes. Our goal isn't to be popular, isn't to be relevant, isn't to be with the culture, isn't to be against the culture. Our goal is to be faithful. And Moses was faithful. So we need to pay attention to the social setting in which we find ourselves and allow the compassion of Christ who lives in us to shape us so that we step into the story of hope that God is writing the world to each of us uniquely. Is God speaking to you about homelessness? You can serve in a shelter right here. About hunger, Uh, there's a community meal right here. (laughs) Do you have children? Just raising them to be people of joy and confidence in Christ, that's a calling. Moses, born into a context. Richard, born into a context. You, born into a context. A family, a social setting. Share your stories. Second, Moses was served by courage and compassion. And we see this in the text in a couple of significant ways. So let's follow along so that we understand the the line of the story. So the king of Egypt, concerned about the uh, exploding population of, of Jews, it says the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named... Shifra, and the other named Pua. Now, when it says Hebrew midwives, uh, there's a bit of a debate here as to whether they're actually Jewish midwives or not. I, I think they were actually not Jewish, but they were charged with midwifing, if that's a verb, uh, uh, Jewish babies who were being born, and this is why they were called Hebrew midwives. That's a reason I'll explain in a minute why I think that way. So, so he says, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them on the birthstool, if it's a son, put him to death. If it's a daughter, she'll live. And then uh, 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 we skipped out a little bit. Because, look at verse 21. Because the midwives feared God, they didn't do that. They let, they let the boys live. It's that's that's a fascinating story. And then, so the, 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 the boys continue on and they're born. And so then Pharaoh says, <clears throat> every son who's born... You're to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you're to keep alive. So plan A was a little bit covert. It was going to look like um, stillbirth or high infant mortality. But the babies keep living. Plan B is not uh, covert. It's overt. In other words, soldiers would come and take the son and throw in the river. That's plan B. So, so into this setting is born Moses, at the time when babies are being confiscated and drowned. And a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter, chapter two, verse one. She conceived, bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Okay. When she could hide him no longer, uh, she put him in a basket, covered it with tar and pitch, made a little boat, in other words, put the child in uh, the river, and Moses' sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So here's the deal. Amazing story of civil disobedience and courageous people in the face of oppression, which ultimately sows the seeds of freedom for the Jews. Now watch this. Here's, here's the story in a nutshell. A, Pharaoh's intent on the genocide of the Jews. So it's, not the, it's not the last time that the Jews will be the object of genocide. It's all through history. And there are reasons for that beyond the scope of this morning. But Pharaoh's intent on killing all the Jews. They've been enslaved. Uh, they've become a source of economic value. But they've grown so numerous by now that it's time to put an end to their expansion. And the strategy is simple. Have the midwives kill the babies. It's quiet. It's covert. It can look like an accident. And so, But when that strategy fails, he tries drowning the children, right? So Pharaoh's intent on genocide. But here, B, this is the most significant thing. There are several people involved in preventing Pharaoh's plan of genocide. Several in this story, and watch this, all of them are women. They're all women. Now, I was studying this and I was like, great. Father's Day sermon. And what do I end up with? The story of five courageous women. But whatever. Father's marry courageous women. That's the point for you. <laughs> and I wanna show you these women so that you can understand what it means to live into your calling. Because often living into our calling means swimming upstream against the prevailing trends of culture. And so here's the, first of all, the midwives, likely not Jewish because uh, uh, Pharaoh says to them, when you are delivering the Hebrew children and there's a distance there. And so if it be read either way, they're Hebrew midwives or they're midwives birthing Hebrew children, I believe that they are Egyptian midwives birthing Hebrew children. And the other reason I believe that is because it says that the two women feared God. They feared God. Now, th- that would be apparent if they were, if they were Jewish. But, but you would only say that if they were not Jewish. And so I believe they're not Jewish. Not from the chosen people, not of your denomination, not, not people with whom you agree on all the finer points of doctrine, and theology, or whatever, but here's the thing. Even though you don't agree with them, even though they're outsiders, even though they're Gentiles, they risk their lives because they fear God. That's the way it is. And there are people outside the faith doing the right thing all the time. Doctors without borders, people sheltering Jews in... Uh, uh, World War II. We traveled to Rwanda, uh, and when we went to the genocide museum, there's a wall of fame. People who who were offering shelter to Tutsis. There were some pastors there. There were some normal people there. There were some witch doctors there. And we were evangelicals. We love to say, "Oh, look at the pastors! Look at what they did!" And they did, and that's good. <laughs> but there were pas- there were pastors party of the genocide. And there were witch doctors sheltering. There's one in particular I read, I'll never forget her story. She was so crazy, everybody was afraid of her. And so the Hutus wouldn't come near her because they were afraid that she put a curse on them. So she invited uh, Tutsis into into her little forest and sheltered them. Hebrew midwives. In other words, Gentiles protecting Jews, protecting Hebrews, They risked their lives at risk of their lives because they feared God. Next up, Moses' mom. By the time Moses is born, Pharaoh's strategy has changed from the covert midwife plan to simply having soldiers come confiscate the baby stolen in the river. So Moses uh, is hidden by his mother for three months in the house, but after a while, it's impossible to hide, kids grow. And so she puts the baby in this basket and puts it in the river and hopes that he'll be found, right? And so he, then he floats down the river and next up, Miriam, Moses' sister, who follows the basket down the river. She puts a basket in the water and it begins to float and she, as it goes down the river, she goes down the river. And then we find next, the daughter of Pharaoh who sees the basket floating in the river and send servants to get it. So now look at this story. It's an amazing story. This is this is Pharaoh's daughter. So, um, her dad, again, sorry, it's Father's Day, but her dad is a loser, right? In <laughs> other words, her dad is intent on killing all the Jews, and she knows that, and she knows the law, and she knows that what's happening presently is soldiers are going in, they're confiscating babies, and they're throwing them in the river. She knows all that. And now she's, read it. The daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens. She saw the basket. Sends her maid, brings it to her, opens it, sees the child, behold, the boy's crying. She had pity on him, and she said, this is what she said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Now, if she's aligned with her dad here, what does she do? Clearly, she takes the baby out of the basket and tosses Moses in the river. I mean, that's conventional wisdom in the moment at the time that would have been culturally appropriate, popular, and, and earned her favor with her dad. And who doesn't want the favor of their father? But I- instead, she said, uh, this is one of the Hebrew children, and the sister said, let me go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and then Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So Moses' mother took the child, nursed him until he was weaned off, and then the child grew and brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she, he became her son. So Moses is adopted by the daughter of the man whose intent is the, is the absolute destruction of all Jews. You, I mean, this is better than a movie. You can I mean, you wouldn't make it up. So the daughter of Pharaoh sees the basket floating in the river, sends servants to get it, sees the baby, hears a cry, and then this is what we read, has compassion on the child. And that's how Moses was saved and brought in the world. Saved by the midwives, saved by Moses' mom, saved by Miriam, saved by the daughter of Pharaoh. Five women contributing to the salvation of Moses Understand here, none of us built our lives alone. No, no one in the room. And when people say, Oh yeah, you know, I'm a self-made, whatever. No, you're not. All of us are shaped. There are people who are invested in us. And yes, for better and worse, but yes, we're shaped. So I make a couple of observations here that are, I think, significant. We live in a world of oppression right now, as we always have. An anti-Muslim fanatic stabs a British politician this week. A homophobic Muslim fanatic kills 50 gay people in a nightclub this week, or assumes them to be gay, I don't think they all are. Boko Haram enslaves little girls. A man in Charleston opens fire and kills blacks in a prayer meeting one year ago yesterday. Paris, Cologne, human trafficking, oppression. This is our world, this is where we live tribalism, fear, hatred, elevated in the political arena. And all these presenting problems are rooted in Ephesians 6, actually. If you fly above it all and you say, now what's happening? Here's what's happening. Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says it this way, we aren't fighting against human enemies. And please remember that. The enemy is not a political party. The the enemy is not the the personification representative of a political party. We are not fighting against uh, human enemies. We are fighting, this is what Paul says we are fighting forces of cosmic darkness and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. We live in a world where systems arise, and all of us are guilty in some sense in participating in the systems. And the systems in which we participate lead to the oppression of others. We buy cheap gas, and somebody suffers somewhere. We pay the cheapest price for a product, and somebody suffers somewhere. We're silent and racism continues. Somebody suffers somewhere. Darkness, darkness, dark. They're called world forces of darkness in the text. That's what they're called. And it's not only the darkness of oppression from systems. It's the oppression of our own wrong choices. When we divorce sex from marriage, that's darkness. The ease with which we leave relationships, darkness. The way we self-medicate, darkness. Here's the second observation. Light breaks through. And then uh, John 1 says, of course, uh, look, light has come into the world. In him, Christ was life, and his life was the what? Light of all of us. So it's a dark world, and light has come. And if light is going to come today, light will come through the character of Jesus. And where is Christ? Look around the room. In other words, where is light in the dark world? Look around the room. Look, right now, look at someone. Just not me, look at someone else. You see, what is in the room right now is the potential for light to shine in a dark world. That's the way it is. You're the light. Not sermons. You. And understand that light begins with small acts. It's covert to not kill babies at birth, doesn't make the headlines. It's covert to hide a baby, doesn't make the headlines. It's covert, if you're not Jewish, uh, to let a known Jewish baby live. Newsflash. Mother shelters baby. No. It's covert. When a teacher believes in a student, that's light. (laughs) When a roommate offers encouragement, that's light. When parents extend forgiveness, that's light. Uh, When you hold a mirror up to someone and say, the choices you are making are destroying your life, that's light. When you offer hospitality, that's light. When you offer a smile, that's light. My friend Martin, who runs a torchbearer school in Austria, shared a story in the meeting I was at this week in Germany, uh, whereby he said it was Christmas time, our our, uh, dorms were empty, they were perfectly clean, everybody was on vacation, and a man came up to me, a Syrian refugee, and he was looking for a place to stay. And it's cold and it's snowing, and I have shelters, but I don't want to call my staff back to clean the rooms again before our first group of guests coming through in a week or whatever it was. He said, so my first thought was no, and I began to say no, and there was a deep conviction in me, don't say no. (laughs) And so I opened the door, and I gave him a place to stay. It never made headlines, but a Christian institution opened their doors and provided a bed for a man on a cold, snowy night. This is light. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we are so interested in the big thing that we think that our lives are insignificant. They are not insignificant. It's a 1,000 points of light that define Christ. Not one big one. No, it's not ever a bonfire. No, it's little light all over the place. And light comes where there's courage and compassion and purposing to do the right thing at any cost. And what do you see these days? Uh, Whatever it is that you see, that's where you need to become light. Our eyes are shaped by stories. Mine's shaped by adoption, and the early death of my dad, and the death of a child, and sexual abuse, cancer, drunk driving accident, seeing sexual slavery. We're shaped by different things, and everybody has a story, but the story will shape the lens through which we see the world, and that's appropriate. (laughs) But to see clearly, you need more than a story, you need the mind of Christ, and I have good news for you this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. So that we can see the story of our own lives, the story of the culture, the intersection of our life and the, and, the, and the time and place in which we're born, and read our Bibles and pray and listen, and out of that, a calling. That's my prayer for you. And so in the end, Moses is prepared for a calling. Third point as we conclude. Acts 7.22 says that Moses was educated in all the ways of Egypt. He knew the culture, <clears throat> he knew the mores, he knew the language, he knew the geography, he knew the, the family in power, he had access, he could speak truth to power, and he, he himself was a man of power in word and deed. Did he want his calling? No, but he was uniquely prepared for it. <laughs> Do I want mine? Not always, but I feel prepared for it. Do you want yours? Maybe not. But God has prepared you. So, in the end, it's important to thank God for how God has created a story that has prepared you for the life that you have. Nothing is lost. Nothing is lost. So as we close this uh, this morning, maybe it'd be valuable if you shared, certainly at home today, your own story with others, how God has shaped you for the, for the life that you're living. Why did you become a university professor? What shaped you for that? What shaped you to have such a passion for parenting? What, what shaped you, uh, by way of tragedy, to be such a gentle, compassionate person now? What shaped you? even here this morning, as we respond, uh, we're gonna sing, and, and as the band comes and we sing, my encouragement is um, that you use our prayer books this morning a little bit and name something in your life that has, at one point had been an, an, if only, a regret. And you just come and share with us for the benefit of all of us. You don't put your name by it, but thank you, God, thank you, God, that you've used the failure of divorce in my life. Thank you, God, that you've used whatever it is in my life. Thank you, God, that you've used that to shame and be a person of hope. I read these. I don't live far from here. And when this place is empty, I come in here and I read these. Sometimes I weep because God has spoken through you to me. So our books are there so that you can thank God for your story and share your story anonymously, if you will, but it's still your story with the rest of us. From if only to thank you. If I could have named the sermon earlier in the week, it would have been that. Thank you, God for how you've used this in my life. Father, meet us now. All of us have a calling. And sometimes our lives are so uh, weighed down with regret that uh, we're living in a sense of bitterness or despair or sorrow when actually we can begin to thank you even now by faith for how you'll use the darkest moment to make us people of light. What an amazing God you are. We thank you for that. Give us responsive hearts. We pray in Christ's name.